0: Talking history. This is news talk.
1: We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender.
2: And out of that silence came thousands of voices.
1: The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one
0: giant leap for mankind. Augusto, Argus, Akoya.
2: How did they pass the Union by perjury and fraud? By slaves who sold their lands for gold as Judas sold his God. And thus they passed the union by Pitt and Castlereagh, could Satan send for such an end more worthy tools than they. Good evening and welcome, we're Talking History on News Talk 106-108 with me Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show we're looking at the life and death of Lord Castlereagh, the controversial politician and statesman who committed suicide 200 years ago, and we'll be finding out how he became such a hate figure. You can email us your thoughts and views to talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. From you. Last week we found out about Mussolini in Myth and Memory and explored fascist Italy through the eyes of his favourite daughter. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website, NewsTalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on Lord Castlereagh. In August 1822, the Marquess of Londonderry committed suicide after suffering some form of mental breakdown. However, it is by his earlier title that he is better remembered, Lord Castlereagh. Born in Ireland, Castlereagh was the Chief Secretary during the 1798 Rebellion and the passing of the Union, and was never forgiven by Irish nationalists for his involvement. Afterwards, he had a glittering career in Britain, serving as Secretary of State for War and then as Foreign Secretary, and he played a crucial role at the Congress of Vienna in 1815. In tonight's show, we want to explore the life Death and Legacy of Lord Castlereagh and the show is in part inspired by a successful conference on the life and death of Castlereagh which took place at Kylemore Abbey last month organised by Professor Tom Bartlett and hosted by the University of Notre Dame and I had the pleasure of attending and giving a paper myself and so I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Thomas Bartlett is Emeritus Professor of Irish History at the University of Aberdeen and a leading expert on Irish History and his books include Ireland A History. Dr Georgina Largy the Dublin Cemetery's Trust Lecturer in Public History And Cultural Heritage At Trinity College Dublin And is an expert On public history And she's working On a new book Suicide in Ireland 1795-1923 to 1923, A Social and Cultural History Dr Tim Murta Is a Research Fellow With the Beyond 2022 Project And is an expert On the politics Of the late 18th And early 19th centuries And his new book Is about to be published Irish Artisans And Radical Politics 1776-1820 to 1820, Apprenticeship to Revolution Well you're all very welcome And later in the show I'll be joined by Dr Maeve Ross senior lecturer in history and grand strategy at King's College London and the co-director of the Centre for Grand Strategy there. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. And Tom, I want to begin with you and how you got the idea to run this conference on Castlereagh because it is the bicentenary of his death, but it it hasn't really attracted much public interest, certainly in this country. And given that you're the biographer of Tone, the expert on revolutionary Ireland, I, I thought it was maybe an unlikely fit to do something on the person who was the arch
3: enemy of tone and the revolutionaries. Uh, I guess so. It, it came about purely uh, through serendipity, actually. I was wandering around Dublin the city centre and I called into Stokes Books in um, George's Street Arcade and I saw there a book, um, The Strange Death of Lord Castlereagh which I hadn't read. Now, I had read a lot about Castlereagh's letters, and I'd worked in the documents in the public record office, and I'd read H. Montgomery Hyde's Rise of Castlereagh. So I was intrigued about the slim volume on Castlereagh, so I took it home, bought it, took it home, and I read it very quickly. It's only 100-odd pages. Um, two things struck me. One is that H. Montgomery Hyde is a very fine historian and a very very nice stylist. And uh, the second thing is struck me is that Hey, Castlereagh died in 1822, and this is 2022. We have to have a conference to mark that bicentenary. And so I got in touch with some of my friends and colleagues um, who are experts in various aspects of Castlereagh's career. Ireland in the 1790s, the Chief Secretary's Office, the Act of Union, Foreign policy, um, his conduct, or his conduct of the peace negotiations at uh, in 1814, 1815, and then of course the strange death itself. And I was keen to see if we could put together something which would shed some light on Castle. Ray. I mean, the, he has not lacked a biographer. There are absolute shelves fulls of shelves full of books, and um, most notably, and. Um, John Bew's magisterial biography of Castlereagh. So what was there left? Well, what I was thinking of trying to do was really to look at, in a, in a broad sense, the case for the prosecution and this case for the defence. That is to say, he was he had a stellar career in British and Irish politics, chief secretary at the time of the Act of Union, and very much involved in counter-terrorism in the, in the 1790s, very much involved in prosecuting the war against Bonaparte, the peace treaties and so on, much admired by European statesmen such as Metternich, much admired in latter days by no less a figure than Henry Kissinger, um, who who rated him extremely highly. On the other hand, he was the apostate, the betrayer. He started off as someone in favour of parliamentary reform and then turned his back on it quickly. He allegedly... Claimed that he would he resigned over the failure to give Catholic emancipation at the time of the Act of Union, allegedly claiming that he would not take office until that was was sorted, and then of course promptly did take office. Um, once within a few months, he very much was to the forefront in the, the repressive legislation post eighteen fifteen in in England. He very much he was the one who introduced the six acts. He defended Peterloo, the army's uh, shooting at the Peterloo Massacre. Um, and he was very much front and centre um, in terms of a, a very repressive government post-1815. And he drew the hatred, I think that's the only word for it, of the romantics. Uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Lord Byron, Thomas Moore and others. So I I was interested to see what we could make of that, of the apparent contradictions in Castlereagh's career, Um, try to see what we could draw out of it um, and sort of set him in context I suppose. And
2: and hosted by the wonderful people of the University of Notre Dame in in the beautiful surroundings of Calmore Abbey. It's interesting the way he was such a hate figure in his own lifetime in Ireland because of the 1798 rebellion and the the betrayal of the union as it was seen in Britain because of his support for repressive legislation and so on. But yet here on the bicentenary of his death, it it doesn't seem to have really passed with with much notice and no. even in terms of those who would celebrate him and his achievements at the Congress of Vienna and so on. And I also think in Ireland he's no longer the, the hate figure. He's kind of Something mm. somewhat forgotten that you know Cromwell is still up there. We did a show on Cromwell a few weeks ago, and he's still you know right at the top. But Castlereagh has faded, whereas maybe in a hundred years ago, Casteray would have been you know and uh, yeah. you know maybe an equal villain in the in the pantheon.
3: Yeah, yeah I think that's right. Well, one thing that struck me—you cast your mind back to the bicentenary of the active union itself it was a relatively low key affair for something that was so dramatically significant in the history of Ireland, um, changing the way Ireland was governed um, ever since essentially yet in 1800 and 2000 not a lot of attention was paid to it. I suspect as well that You know, there's such a thing as commemoration fatigue has set in. Um, We've had the decade of commemoration, which I'm sure you've been dealing with on and off over the last 10 years. I think people may be heartily sick of more commemorations. So I think Castlereagh's passing, so to speak, was going to pass unnoticed um, through those two. Just that the 1800 seems remote now compared to war of independence the civil war home rule uvf formation irish citizen army and so on all of that would be much more relevant much more up to date i think with, with an audience
2: yeah georgina it is interesting that point about fatigue with commemorations as a public historian do you find that that, that what people are interested in it perhaps maybe changes and it's not always easy to identify
4: yeah, I mean, I think just listening to Tom there, it was very interesting that we, I mean, 200 years ago does seem a long time, but yet there was such um, a fanfare and so much publication around the 1798 rebellion in 1998 and and also the famine. So I think there's a selection around what we choose to commemorate and remember. And the Act of Union was much fought against over the course of its, you know, 120 odd year history. So um, the, it's long-term failure, I suppose, might be one of the reasons why. And Castlereagh's, you know, ambivalent um, person... In Irish history is, uh, I think, might be one of the reasons as well. So we've we've in that in the period we'd say from two thousand and one, which is the you know the two hundredth anniversary of the Act of Union, you know, um, being introduced, um, we've had there's been much more focus politically and by historians maybe on the upcoming centenaries, which are tied into the to the nationalist agenda, and that's that's the reality of a thing. So the politics at play contemporarily um, are are playing much more of a role in what we select to. To commemorate, I think, and that's that's very evident in in the kind of forgetting of Castlereagh.
2: And Georgina, I introduced you as an expert on public history. What exactly does public history mean? Is it is it something like talking history, how we engage with the public? Uh, is it conferences? What exactly is it?
4: Well, public history is basically where the public access their history and how it's produced and constructed for public consumption. So, what you do here is public history. What we're doing today, so it's whatever happens around our understanding of the past that happens outside of the academy. So schools, primary school teachers, museums, um, documentaries, heritage community groups, the, the vast gamut of people who engage with the past, genealogists, family historians, all public history in practice. So it's a huge tent, basically.
2: And Georgina, do you think historians can influence what the public are interested in or does the public have its own idea? Because, for example, we ended up doing two shows on the Irish Civil War because the first one was, there was such huge interest in it, it was by some distance our most downloaded uh, show in the last six months. So we returned to it and, 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 and brought in other contributors. cassare may not get the same level of interest. So there, there are... Those demands out there?
4: I think so, yeah. It's definitely a d- kind of um, a market driven m- market in the same way that anything else is. So I know speaking with colleagues. We often, particularly in the last 10 to 20 years, some of the research that's gone on around the War of Independence and the Civil War, there's been an absence maybe of acknowledgement of that academic scholarship outside of the academy. So you see that in kind of very smaller local commemorative events and I, I'm not here going to name anything that I would consider Kind of suspect or lacking, maybe the academic rigor. Because that's fine. It's about people engaging at the past, and that's what we want as historians. But I do think there's somewhat of a gap between um, what we do as researchers and historians, and maybe the best historians are those who can communicate effectively why what they're looking at is important or what they see is important. But ultimately, you're never gonna you're never gonna skew the market in such a way as to avoid the popularity of the Civil War or the famine or 1798 even as topics that people feel they understand a little bit of and want to know a little more of maybe or just have their own agenda because the first place we meet with history is in our own sitting room it's our grannies telling us stories about the famine or the black and tans or whatever it is it, we don't and that and those are our first kind of sites of authority around the past and I think from from a historian's point of view it's it's frustrating because you spend so many hours in the archives and you you craft, you know, wonderful arguments but ultimately where people really engage with the past is kind of is often on an emotional level so you you have to go with that as well.
2: We will be returning of course to the strange death of Castlereagh and the circumstances of his suicide in 1822 but let's look at his earlier career and the rise and Tim it is fascinating the way he has you know, a fairly a fairly impressive rise in Irish politics in the 1790s. I think it's aided by family connections to the Lord Lieutenant, uh, Lord Camden. But he does rise from being a, a member of Parliament, pretty much put in because his family can invest a lot of money in the election campaign, to suddenly being kind of a key player in the dramatic events of 1798 in the Union. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's quite an ascent. I mean. You, you pick up on something very important, which is very well linked with his family. I mean, uh, several family relations to former world le- lieutenants. Uh, he married the cousin of the chief secretary in the early 1790s, Robert Hobart, his wife, Amelia Hobart, later by, by, by marriage. Um, but, I mean, he, he has he a very clever strategy. I don't think it's a strategy, it's firmly held out of ideological belief, which is uh, a criticism of the excesses of the French Revolution, a sort of moderate enthusiasm for local Irish reform, and if not an outright hostility, then at least a deep skepticism of the more hard-line Protestant ascendancy figures within the Irish government and within the Irish parliament. Uh, in many ways, he hitches his wagon to William Pitt very early on. He is someone who praises Pitt and his actions over in England, uh, sort of in the world of London politics, while also having a little bit more independence in terms of how he situates himself in the Irish Parliament as an MP. So he you know, he, he actually, despite his enthusiasm for Pitt and his outlook, particularly Pitt's outlook uh, uh, in terms of the war with the French, he actually initially sits sort of with the opposition uh, in, in the Irish House of Commons. He's very friendly with the Whigs, the Whigs of the Capital and the Northern Whig Club are sort of the key political societies that he and his father are both sort of active in. Uh, he's not beyond criticizing the Lord Lieutenant and the Chief Secretary. And the Hobart, who again becomes his cousin by marriage, is actually... Quite annoyed with Castlereagh uh, before that marriage because of sort of the constant barrage of criticism Castle Ray's put into him in, in the Commons about Irish government policy. Um, but again, you know, family relations are, are, are what matters in the 18th century too often. Uh, in the beginning of 1795, the disastrous, short-lived Lord Lieutenancy of Earl Fitzwilliam, his withdrawal and his replacement by Castle Ray's step-uncle, Earl Camden, and while well, Camden doesn't appoint Castlereagh as chief secretary initially, it's uh, an old hand, Thomas Pelham, who'd being chief secretary for a brief period in the 1780s, he's already floating the idea within several months of his appointments. This is Camden. Uh, he's already floating the idea that oh, my, my, my step, step-nephew might be a good good, good, good candidate for a uh, position within Dublin Castle, perhaps even a chief secretaryship. Uh, Thomas Pelham, who he had taken as chief secretary, is recurrently ill. He has long-term sickness and they need an acting chief secretary. And very gradually, uh, Camden wears down some opposition in London to the appointment of Castlereagh. Ray, and that is eventually what happens uh, at the beginning of 1798.
2: And Tim, is he a good chief secretary? Because there's a lot of criticism of him for being... Cold, you know, Cornwallis who replaces Camden as Lord Lieutenant said that he was so cold that nothing could touch him, that he doesn't seem to be great at, at making friends and, and trying to persuade people to go a certain way. So I wonder, temperamentally, was he suited for the job?
1: I actually think he was for a couple of reasons. One, actually what you're describing there, being a bit cold, being a bit aloof, in the normal circumstances that might have been to his detriment. But in 1798, his step uncle, Camden is increasingly in the thrall to sort of a small group of hardliners what are referred to as the Castle Cabinet. That's the Lord Chancellor, uh, Jack Fitzgib- Fitzgibbon, uh, the Speaking Specialist Commons, John Foster, and John Beresford, um, who are not necessarily always giving the best advice to his step-uncle. And after Camden's uh, recall, after the rebellion breaks out and is replaced by Cornwallis, Castle Ray is actually sort of praised by Cornwallis because, oh, you haven't been sort of piling it up with these guys, you can take a cold eye to them. You aren't sort of, you know, their drinking buddy. Yes, you can actually analyze them castle, right? you can even actually sort of see the faults in what his step on has done and is kind of actually willing to sort of acknowledge to Cornwallis, which endears him very quickly. Uh, the other thing you mentioned sort of the idea of him as sort of cold, perhaps even ruthless in his sort of endorsement. This is one of the ironies of the 1798 rebellion, particularly what's going on Dublin Castle. Cornwallis comes in and is generally seen as actually pretty even-handed. Uh, measured severity is usually the term that's applied to him. He stops some of the sort of kangaroo courts, the court-martials that sort of local loyalists are running. He recentralizes administrative sort of, justice. Both uh, he and Castlereagh work in tandem to stop sort of retributive justice, sort of justice after the fact, by sort of more panicked and hardline elements within sort of, the ascendancy world. The irony, of course, is that Cornwallis, despite being the older lieutenant, gets this reputation of being quite lenient. He's Croppy Wallace. He's been too, too you know, too... too, too Delinquent, whereas Pasaway gets this sort of sheer as sort of someone who uh, overlistened to the torture going on in the square of Dublin Castle outside his office window and was sort of relishing in it. There's no evidence of that, actually. I mean, yes, he had to take some very hard decisions, but you actually looked at what he forced through. It tends to be pretty much in step with Cornwallis. He's the chief secretary, so that means he's the main government spokesman in the Irish House of Commons, and he's going to the Commons and having to actually sort of talk down some of the more extreme measures. I mean, very early in the outbreak of the rebellion, one of the things that some figures in the in Irish Commons were talking about was essentially executing all state prisoners um, you know, without a trial, essentially. I mean, completely outside the bounds of any sort of justice. And Castleway actually sort of you know, walks them down from that. Um, again, both Cornwallis, he stops some of the sort of more crazier court-martial antics that are going on in the field. Uh, he also negotiates sort of the treaty with the state prisoners, the sort of leaders of the United Irishmen. Uh, who are contained in Kilmainham. To so sort of arranging their exile in return for information. He oversees the amnesty to many of the rank and file. Um, you know, but that's the irony. He's remembered as sort of this hate figure as Cornwallis has a much better write-up.
2: Tom, that is fascinating. I began the show with that famous poem or a poem that was famous uh, for a time for certain generations of Irish people. How did they pass the Union by perjury and fraud? And, you know, Pitt is named and Castlereagh is named. Cornwallis is not named, even though he's the Lord Lieutenant who who, who does direct the union. So why does Castlereagh become the hate figure who the assassin of his country, the person who betrayed his people?
3: I think w- one reason for that is the press coverage, adverse press coverage of Castlereagh. For whatever reason, he excites the ire of Presbyterian reformers. Um, He's seen as a a turncoat. He was one of them, and then he was not. He was their great hope, and then he was not. And there are, in the late 1790s, a raft of journalists who see it as their business to persecute and pursue Castlereagh forever after with the allegations that he was responsible for torture, that he rigged the trial of William Orr, who is a sort of a martyr to Presbyterianism um, and, and was executed. No evidence that Castlereagh had anything to do with, with William Orr's death. But nonetheless, that allegation was made and pursued, continued pursued. The, the key person here, I suppose, is Peter Finnerty, um, n- n- more or less a forgotten journalist. But he leaves... Dublin, <clears throat> excuse me, leaves Dublin and goes to London and uh, gets a job as uh, in the Morning Chronicle and um, continues to be uh, the persecutor of, of Castlereagh. Allegedly, he has what we would call now a compromat on Castlereagh and this may be something which flipped Castlereagh over the edge to, in the late 1820s, but as late as 1817, um. In the House of Commons, allegations of uh, cruelty and torture were still being flung at Castlereagh. And it was... Um, again, it's its its really difficult to know just... The evidence for that is pretty much non-existent. He, yes, he was there at the time and he may not have done enough to stop it, but he was personally not the one who was wielding the, the lash or anything of that sort. And uh, like that, he I think the... the the coterie of journalists and writers who were determined that Castlereagh would be the one who was who would be brought to the dock um, as the assassin of his country, uh, the, the one who was the robe spear of Ireland, and so on. These epithets were constantly flung at him. Throughout the 1810s, the eighteen even up to the day of his death, he was still the one who was seen as the major culprit for the 1790s. And
2: do you think he deserves that reputation? Because Henry Grattan, towards the end of his life, told us son, Don't Hate Casseray, you know, he loves Ireland or don't yeah. be too hard on him. Yeah. Uh, and that there were other people who played significant roles and Tim has done brilliant work in, you know, looking at, you know, the, the whole <laughs> castle administration and others who were involved. Edward Cook played a crucial, but yet Casseray is the symbol and he's the target for all of the animosity and hatred. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, another reason I guess is something that Georgina touched on is that Ned Cook, Edward Cook, left no papers. He he has there's no archive of Cook letters which you could you could use to sort of see what exactly he did. Now you can put piece piece together what he was about, but it's from multiple sources and it's not easy to do. Castlereagh, on the other hand, left voluminous papers. Um, Twelve volumes eventually were published of them, and there are many hundreds of letters and so on, which remain unpublished. So the amount of material available on Castlereagh, I think, helps to put him into the frame, whereas others like Edward Cook... um, who was clearly the the, the arch spymaster and you know one who oversaw the the legion of informers that, that reporting to Dublin Castle is really completely unknown except to specialists in that period. Castlereagh is the one who's go whose name goes down in infamy. The fact that the Byron and Shelley and Tom Moore and so on took against him so viciously, um, also I think you know. With rather bad poetry, have elevated his status as as the hit a hit figure, and um, for 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 the
2: for really. Yeah, I met murder on the way. He had a mask like Castlereagh. And Georgina it's interesting in this period we have two significant suicides you know not just Cassere in 1822 but Wolfe Tone in 1798 and maybe in the way that they're remembered and in the way that we think about them it is different.
4: Yeah it's definitely different and kind of understanding the memory and there's there's another man attached to um the 1798 rebellion as well a guy called Thomas Duggan Fitzgerald whose grandson kills himself in 1864 and his death is framed in the context of what his grandfather did in 1798. So there's a lot of power in that moment in Irish history and it frames both Tone's death, and Tom is far, far better expert on Tone than I, um, but also Castlereagh's death. And I think maybe partly one of the other reasons Castlereagh is so well remembered is he goes on to do so much else and so much on the international stage as well. Um, But... Wolf Tone's death and there's a lot of debate around whether or not he killed himself and um, whether he intended to die in in cutting his own throat which is the method that Castlereagh himself does in August 1822 um, but they're framed very differently. So um, Tone is seen almost as a Republican hero. There's a number of French revolutionary um, um, participants who also kill themselves um, as an act of honour and it kind of refers back to a very... Um, Older understanding of suicide that it was a, a noble act that you would fall on your sword or die on your sword. So it's associated with Roman soldiers. Um, over the course of a thousand years, um, which we will do in two seconds, um, it becomes much more maligned and much more negative. It's associated initially with demonic possession, then with mental illness. Um, by the 18th century, um, things are coming around and people are starting to have empathy and sympathy with people who kill themselves, but still. Wolf Tone does it for political reasons to the extent that his death by suicide is often not viewed as suicide by people who really um, adhere to his political um, perspective so Republicans and Nationalists so in 1898 so 100 years after his death people are still protesting that he killed himself killed himself and as I understand it people have done it even more recently on various radio shows as well that came up at the conference Um, uh, people um, rang into another radio station (laughs)
2: This was was after Who Wants to Be a Millionaire back in Gay Byrne's Day uh, a question was how did Wolf Tone's and one of the options was suicide, and one of more but like the person answered suicide. But a live line the next day, huge questions and, and debate because people didn't want to uh, accept that an Irish here because it wasn't a Catholic thing, ignoring that, of course, Tone wasn't even a Catholic and Tone would have had different views on the whole thing.
4: Yeah, and it's not even that it's not a Catholic thing, it's um, they're, the attitudes to suicide in the 18th and 19th century are incredibly complicated. But Castlereagh's death by suicide is is almost seen as an extension of his betrayal of Ireland in 1798 um and and there's protests at his funeral um because ultimately at, at a coroner's inquest at the time you could have one of two verdicts. One was suicide whilst temporarily insane which in effect is innocent of the crime of suicide and the second verdict was filo de se or a felon of oneself which meant that you were sane at the time that you killed yourself and therefore in your right mind and therefore you were guilty of the crime. So if the verdict was the latter it kind of it, it would suggest that um, there was um, much corruption within the echelons of British political power and he wasn't the only suicide. There's, I think, somebody's done a study but there's multiple suicides of, of English peers and political elites from the 1790s onwards.
2: And of course Lord Byron rushes into print as soon as Casserie does commit suicide to say so he has cut his throat at last. Who? He, the man who cut his countries long ago. Well we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back I'll be Going to Dr. Maeve Ryan of King's College London about the international career of Lord Casseray. Talking history with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life, death and legacy of Lord Castlereagh on this, the bicentenary of his death. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr Maeve Ryan, a senior lecturer in history and grand strategy at King's College London and the co-director of the Centre for Grand Strategy there. And she's the author of the brilliant new book, Humanitarian Governance and the British Anti-Slavery World System, published by Yale University Press and launched earlier this week. Maeve, you're very welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Pleasure.
2: So why is Castlereagh considered such a great foreign secretary? What contribution did he make to foreign policy and, and, and the British approach?
3: Well, Castlereagh
0: is someone who hasn't always been seen in this way. And his, his reputation has been rehabilitated kind of uh, in, in recent years, most notably by the magisterial biography by John Bew. Um But, you know, I think more recently people have come to see him as successful. And, and there are several reasons for this. One is, and uh, thinking in particular about his contribution to the, the latter years of the uh, wars against revolutionary France. In, in his uh, capacity he, um, in, as a cabinet minister, he's building up the army, sees the importance of building up the army, which is not typically a major uh, arm of you know, the, the typical kind of strength of the British state. A standing army is not typically a feature of that, but he sees the importance of building up that army and constructing the final coalitions against Napoleon. So it's it's partly about um, constructing a strong enough army to be a meaningful force in the field, but also forcing that sort of negotiation and bringing together those allies and keeping them together quite importantly. So he's quite associated with the successful prosecution of that latter part of the war. He's also seen as a very skillful negotiator. He gets himself to the continent early um, in in, uh, 1814 to get ready to negotiate as the tide is starting to turn against Napoleon. He gets himself the Treaty of Chaumont signed. Um, uh, and one of the reasons actually he gets a, such a strong army in the field is so that Britain can't kind of play second fiddle. He brings a very clearly articulated set of demands agreed with the cabinet in advance. But he also has uh, a very a clear insight into and kind of able to see a few steps ahead. Uh, you know, he recognizes that, you know, France will be defeated, but the major risk is a new hegemon will emerge in Europe. And of course, that seems to be Russia. And he sees this and, and, and at the Congress of Vienna in particular, recognizes the the need to um, to prevent that from happening. So you know, Britain has just fought uh, two decades of war against revolutionary France, but he sees this need to prevent that risk from emerging and goes ahead and signs a secret alliance with Austria and France. Extraordinarily, you know, the, the power that has just been defeated and is, is, uh, everyone is there to kind of uh, negotiate a settlement to kind of reconstruct a broken European continent. He signs a secret alliance with them precisely to prevent the, you know, Russia from rising. So. There's an extraordinary kind of um, vision um, um, and skill to that. It doesn't necessarily play all that well. In in modern diplomatic terms, it's hard to imagine someone going so wildly off script. But it works very well for Castlereagh. He plays a very skillful European game. And recognising, of course, the importance of the European order for British interests and, and, um, and making sure that Britain has a seat at that top table.
2: So how would you define his approach to statecraft? Because a lot of people credit the peace that you have in Europe for pretty much a 100 years down to his balance of power and the work that he did at the Congress of Vienna.
0: Yes, I mean it's interesting. You could probably boil down his essential goal um, to uh, as one that sustain and expand the power base required for Britain to achieve British uh, uh, global commercial dominance. So global commercial dominance is, is the the objective here. But a key component of this is the maintenance of a favourable balance of power in Europe. So uh, he goes about this in a few ways, and the personality has something to do with it. The people who praise Castle really see him as a quiet, cool pragmatist. I mean, people who didn't like him thought he was cold and distant and a bit weird. Uh, but this. Approach was very, or this kind of persona was very suited to that kind of elite, closed, secret diplomacy of the era, and he was very skillful at that. But skill, skillful at building those relationships um, and and uh, and having those conversations in, in the way that he did. Um, there were kind of just three characteristics to his statecraft that you'd you point to. One was a, a clear understanding of power rather than law or abstract ideals or rights, you know, as the defining feature of the international arena, um, and a recognition that. That um, the ability to to project power would, would be the sort of the defining um, uh, the defining factor that would govern you know Britain's ability to kind of achieve that overall objective. Um, it's important though to point out you know he doesn't see power as equivalent to territorial reach. It's a really interesting understanding of the components of power and kind of a, I guess a theory of what British power can look like in its most effective form. It's not territorial reach, and actually this sort of presages that British approach to informal imperialism that's so successful for them a lot in the 19th century. Uh, Castle is recognising that British national interests are best served by by a period of peace where Britain has a head start and kind of can can pursue and dominate in the international commercial arena. Um, And so, you know, wants to restore things like the monarchy in France to kind of bring back that kind of stability so that um, Britain can compete peacefully for that commercial dominance. So as early as, you know, 1801, he's already talking about how at the end of the war they'll return colonies to France and kind of bring things back to the previous equilibrium. Um, a second principle that I'd say is really important is a strategic um, understanding of the importance of public opinion. Again, very kind of uh, you know very commonly understood now, but at the time this was considered quite um, unusual. A real understanding that you need to bring public opinion with you as a kind of an anchor of statecraft, particularly in the British context where um, you know, the public sphere was quite quite well developed at this point, albeit not in any kind of modern form of democracy. I guess the final thing I'd say is. Cossard Ray demonstrated a really interesting appreciation of historical change and uh, the conviction that the long term stability of the domestic, of political, international orders um, depend on their legitimacy and so forcing through a settlement that lacks the test of legitimacy will never succeed. And this is where his suspicion and ultimately break with the, uh, the, the Congress powers and the, sort of, the Holy Alliance powers um, happened, where that starts to be stretched to breaking point.
2: And then finally, Maeve, I suppose a question about his legacy in terms of foreign policy?
0: He is not uh, someone who has been foregrounded as the defining uh, character in any kind of way. But as I say, it's slightly rehabilitated. And you can trace this identifiable uh, grand strategic rationale that emerges from the Napoleonic Wars and can be associated with Castlereagh's approach and his understanding and, I suppose, his, his ability to intuit and feel, uh, read, read the room and read the mood um, and understand that balance uh, of Europe as, a, as such an important characteristic of um, a kind of future British interest. But that does emerge from the Napoleonic Wars, and you can trace that through into the 20th century. And, you know, in the aftermath of another catastrophic period of war, um, the Second World War, Britain and British uh, statesmen, stateswomen, at that point, are, are thinking about, you know, how to engineer a soft landing in the aftermath of the Second World War, when obviously the British um, Empire is contracting rapidly and in a very different position, trying to construct a peace uh, as a world power in decline rather than on the rise. Um, and But that rationale is really kind of deeply internalized by this point. And I'm not consciously traced back to Castlereagh by many historians, and I'm, I'm reluctant to paint him as a kind of sole strategic genius. Very much a product of the circumstances that produced him, uh, and in particular as a kind of a mentee of uh, Pitt the Younger. But I would say his agency matters here. His own achievements are, are relevant here, and there are some who do, particularly Canning, Palmerston, who do um, explicitly hark back to him and, and and echo some of his principles. Echo that that's shared strategic goal and principle of of British interest, which is that global commercial dominance, maintaining a favorable balance of power in Europe and and using that stability to succeed and, uh, and to thrive in the way that these statesmen believe is most important.
2: Okay, brilliant stuff. My thanks to Dr Maeve Ryan of King's College London for joining me tonight to talk about the foreign policy of Lord Castlereagh and to echo what she said about the brilliant biography of Castlereagh by John Bew. And John was also one of those contributors at the conference in Kylemore Abbey, organised in conjunction and uh, hosted by uh, the University of Notre Dame. Maeve, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. We'll be back with more talking history and more with the panel on the death and legacy of Lord Castlereagh right after this break. Talking history with Patrick Gagan on
3: News Talk. On News Talk.
2: Well, welcome back to Talking History as we remember the life, death and legacy of Lord Castlereagh, who died 200 years ago in 1822. I'm rejoined by my expert panel, Professor Thomas Bartlett, Dr Georgina Larragui, Dr Tim Murta, And before the break there, we heard from Dr Maeve Ryan of King's College London. Tom, let's go back then to where we started with The Strange Death of Lord Castlereagh and this H. Montgomery Hyde book that you found in the bookstore. Let's talk about how, let's talk maybe about his take on it and The Strange Death because it includes, you know, uh, different kind of, uh, it includes paranoia, conspiracy theories, the fear that he's about to be outed for homosexual crimes as they were at the time. And it's a very dramatic
3: tale. It's it sure is. It, I mean, it, there's a, any number of theories as to what drove um, Lord Castlereagh to commit suicide to cut his throat with a small penknife. You know, it, one obvious point is that there, there was there was insanity in the Castlereagh family going back a generation or so. So that may have come to the fore. I think relentless torment of journalists. Uh, even though it seems um, a little bit bizarre, but the, the relentless pursuit by Finnerty, Finnerty and his friends was eventually getting to Castlereagh. And there is some evidence, it's slight, but it is suggestive that there was a sting operation in play to try and catch Castlereagh out as attending a brothel. Well, it's the Regency time, so like no, no big deal about going to a brothel. But this was a brothel where... Men were dressed as women and that may not have been sat, sat so well with uh, contemporary views and there is some suggestion that Finnerty had got hold of this and that he was preparing to splurge this all over the Morning Chronicle or whatever and that this, the fear of this there's also the point that Castlereagh, Castlereagh has no children and it's quite astonishing from a very early period even when he's in Ireland and barely 30-year-old, people are saying he's a green sapling. You know, he's got nothing in him. He's never going to be a father. And this continues all through the early 19th century. Um, constantly brought up, no no children, no children. What, you know, there's obviously some sort of, it's, it's coded for some sort of statement. And then they bring in... That Montgomery Hyde looks at the notion that perhaps he picked up syphilis when he was a student at Cambridge, a very short period of time there, but that's all possible as well. So there were multiple explanations um, as to why Castlereagh killed himself. Um, let's not put aside. Overwork work as well. I mean, he, he had a very, very demanding job. He was essentially leader of the commons for 10 years. Lord Liverpool, almost forgotten now, except to historians, was the prime minister. But Lord Liverpool was in the House of Lords and away from the fray. Castlereagh was the front and centre for nearly 10 years through Peterloo, the Six Acts, the suspension of habeas corpus, and so on. So this was... You know, multiple pressures were building on him. Um, Relentless pursuit by the press, his windows broken by um, pro-reform mobs. He had to carry two pistols to defend himself. Uh, Multiple pressures tipped him over the edge I think that that was the explanation that Montgomery Hyde came up with no, no single one in other words
2: Tim it is very compelling when you look at what Tom was saying there in terms of the accumulation of pressures and I can't help but thinking that the relentless abuse that he suffered over those decades since the the 98 rebellion and the passing of the union it must it would have worn down anyone you know to be constantly abused the, the poems the ballads the the, the hatred the uh, you know the Cato Street conspirators coming to blows almost over who would get to kill Castlereagh that you know it, it can't be good for your mental health
1: Two of the things Tom was alluding to and Georgina alluded to it as well uh, Linda Colley in her great study of uh, this period Britain calculates I think it's 17 uh, members of Parliament killed themselves between 1793 and 1820 something I'm not quite sure of the dates but I mean you know it's double digits of suicide. This is the period where the stresses of both the, the French and Polionic Wars, followed by sort of the social anxieties that come afterwards, the early stage of industrialization and turmoil, uh social unrest. I mean people in government are working harder than they did in the eighteenth century. There's a certain strum and rang sort of feel to sort of social life. Uh people are drinking heavily, they're dueling, uh, they're working hard. And Castle is part of that culture, um, as Tom alluded to there Perhaps there's a physiological explanation here if this is syphilis uh, that he picked up, and there is some evidence that John Buehers presented from his correspondence with his grandfather and step-uncle from his days in Cambridge that he did have the French disease, as was known then. Um, then his late stages of tertiary syphilis would explain sort of dementia or some confusion. Uh, coupled with overwork and this relentless stream of good views, yeah, I could have pushed him over. The edge. And there is some evidence that, what Tom alluded to, which, you know, I think is, there, there's reason to believe that is credible, that there was a sting operation. There's also some evidence counter to that as well. Uh, so, for instance, uh, an associate of Castle Ray, the younger uh, undersecretary of the private secretary of his, later in the 19th century, actually writes a recollection where he says, yeah, this thing about sort of you know, transvestite uh, sex workers, that's something I mentioned to Castle Ray. I saw once, I was accosted by a man dressed as a woman uh, near Hyde Park, and I sort of recounted it to Castlereagh when I got back to his office, and other parts of this sort of conspiracy that Castlereagh is sort of blathering about in the final days—all sort of things that were swirling around. There was a blackmail plot against another minister earlier on in 1821, which Castlereagh had been sort of uh, key in sort of quashing and sort of taking uh, taking that, that conspiracy apart. So, is he reassembling pieces of other people's stories in this sort of psychosis uh, haze? To create this sort of persecuted conspiracy theory that he sort of, he's talking about, which a lot of the evidence sort of hinges on, it's possible. And you know what? the frustrating thing is, as Tom has alluded to, there's multiple explanations. We don't have any sort of smoking gun.
2: And Regina, it does also show the attitudes to homosexuality at the time, that uh, if there was a a hint or a suggestion that you were involved in in any homosexual act, that that was the end of your career and that was going to be the destruction. And in his his frayed mental state, uh, all these things are weighing heavily on him. Georgina, uh, you had a fascinating aspect in your paper at the conference in Conmore Abbey about uh, graves and, and bur- burials in churchyards for, for suicides because there was always that popular perception that a suicide couldn't be buried in consecrated ground.
4: Yeah, and that, that is only applied if the person is found sane. So the majority of people um, in the 18th and the 19th centuries were found temporarily insane. So those people are all entitled to burial in consecrated ground, depending on what the clergy say. So Castlemere's death is instrumental in introducing or having uh, kind of preceding the introduction in 1823 of what's called the Philo de Say Act, which prohibits... Burial at the crossroads with a stick through the heart which was the um, customary not rather than lawful but the customary practice of how the bodies of suicides were buried if they were found sane and there's archaeological and historical evidence that this happened in Ireland and England um, elsewhere um, a recent um, um, article by Jimmy Kelly um, in, Drum- uh, in D.C.U. has found um, a suicide at the crossroads in Clare in 1818 but for the majority of suicides they were buried in in churchyards whether they were buried in consecrated sections of the churchyards is difficult to say because there are maps and other evidence to suggest that there are unconsecrated sections of churchyards but lawfully under the law from 1823 after Castlereagh's death um, a suicide had to be buried in what was referred to as a recognised churchyard. The other kind of posthumous punishment for suicides was the confiscation of their goods and chattels Um, and as a result of possibly the ignominy of being found a sane suicide in addition to the very strong and compelling evidence that he suffered from mental from a mental breakdown um, resulted in the coroner returning an inquest or the jury returning um, an inquest of temporarily insane and as a result he was buried in Westminster Abbey but that's not something that was afforded to a number of suicides that I've come across in Ireland in the 19th century. So as late as the 1890s, there are protests around the burial of suicides in places like Shore, East Cork, um, where communities rather than the church. So people often attribute it to um, clerical, you know, opposition to suicides. It's often local communities. And some of the cases that I've come across, that clergymen, be it a Church of Ireland or a Catholic clergyman, have intervened on the part of family and the deceased to try and get the crowd to um, to kind of stand back from their protest. So it's much more complicated than this, but um or than, than our kind of popular memory would suggest, basically.
2: And it shows how studying the the life and death of Castlereagh is also a way of exploring attitudes to suicide. In the nineteenth century,
4: absolutely. I mean, he's fascinating microcosm in part because he results in this legislative change. And Barbara Gates, who's written on Victorian suicides, kind of begins her book with this. Um, but in addition to that, you can trace the memory and and in addition to his suicide, other potential suicides like um, uh, Judge William Nicholas Keogh, John Sadler, um, possibly Richard Piggott, its uncertain—are um, all dragged into this kind of uh, almost a lineage of suicides in nineteenth-century Irish politics but also by looking at the issues of burial and the distinction that existed between Castlereagh um, and his burial at Westminster and he's buried very near to Henry Grattan and one of the articles um in the in some of the newspapers in the 1870s and 80s have has a journalist going to visit the grave of Grattan and it it mentions the fact that Castlereagh's statue is looking down and casting a very long shadow over Grattan's grave. Um, but it was very different. But that said, I've come across very recently two instances of suicides who are commemorated um, within Church of Ireland through um, like plaques on the walls and also through stained glass windows. So it's uh, it's not clear cut anyway.
2: Tom, what is the legacy of Castlereagh? Because he's gone from being maybe a hate figure to not being as as well remembered, but he's certainly not celebrated. People don't take pride in the fact that this Irish man went <laughs> off and had this glittering career as the, the British Foreign Secretary, the chief diplomat at the Congress of Vienna and so on.
3: Well, look, the, like most historical personages, you can find in him or in her whatever It suits you to find. If you want to find someone who is opposed to interventionism, well, then you can find it in Castlereagh. He won't have anything to do with the Spanish colonies when there was a revolt in them. He won't have anything to do with the Italian patriots who have a revolt. Non-intervention. On the other hand, do you want multilateralism? Well, you can get that with Castlereagh as well, with his Concert of Europe, and so on and so forth. A rule, an international rules-based. Program is really what he wants, but like that, there are there are you know there are awkward bits as well. He, um, never quite certain what he's doing with the the new United States. Um, He seems to want to have a friendly relationship with the United States, even though there's not only a Revolutionary War, but there was the War of eighteen twelve as well. and at the same time, he's not above making mischief with uh, Native Americans, that is to say, espousing that they be given a separate area, which I think is really code for British influence in the new United States, in the heartland of the United States, down in the Ohio Valley, the Mississippi Valley or whatever. So he, he's he's you can find evidence for what you want. Take, for example, the attack on Um, Copenhagen in 1807 this is completely outrageous Um, he's minister for the navy at that stage Denmark and Britain were not at war but Britain wants the Danish fleet and so they send off a naval expedition which mercilessly bombards Copenhagen, kills around 2000 people mostly civilians if not all, women and children and T- Sails off with the Danish fleet. They didn't want it to fall into French hands, but of course intelligence was faulty. Where does how does that sound? His fleet was rubbish. Half the ships seemed to have foundered on the way back to England. They were never any use to anyone, and France had no notion of of capturing them. It may have been done to impress the Russians that Castlereagh was a serious g- contender and determined to, to do down the French. It is always that. So, you, as I say, you can find preemptive strikes. Okay, you'll find plenty of that. If you want to see a, a generous peace, look at France. He's determined that France will not be punished. Um, by uh, by the other great powers Prussia and Austria and Russia um, in 1815 and he succeeds you know you come away from the Congress of Vienna in my view with the, with the notion that France actually won the war uh, you know it, it, all of a sudden it's nothing to do with France it had to do with that awful man Bonaparte who wasn't even French and that, that's he manages he wants France to be a stabilising force in Europe if France is dismembered or broken up then Russia and and Prussia will pour into the vacuum created, and thus he, he wants to he wants to stop that at all costs. It, it you know it you can find what you want in Castlereagh, and maybe that's what makes him such an interesting person. Um, as to you know, as, as you mentioned, I've written on Wolf Tone quite a lot. Um, it, they do seem to be unusual bedfellows, um, but like that, as historians. We're not interested in praising or condemning, we're trying to understand people in the past based on the evidence that they have left behind. So cassare leaves a lot of evidence, a lot of documents and that, that's what would it would get me interested in
2: him. OK, well I think that's a brilliant note on which to end our discussion tonight and our thanks as well to Tom Bartlett for organising uh, that brilliant conference uh, hosted in Kyle Abbey and uh, uh, with the great help of the wonderful people at the University of Notre Dame. Well, my thanks to my brilliant pa- panel of experts, Professor Tom Bartlett of the University of Aberdeen, Emeritus Professor of Irish History there, Dr Georgina Larragui of the Dublin Cemeteries Trust and uh, Trinity College Dublin, uh, Dr Tim Murtagh of the Beyond 2022 project and of course Dr Maeve Ryan who joins us from King's College in London. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to Eva Breen who produced the show tonight, Maraisa Sullivan my series producer and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week. Hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.